Section 8 of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section 8. Recollections of a Gifted Woman. From Leamington to Stratford-on-Avon, the distance is eight or nine miles, over a road that seemed to me most beautiful. Not that I can recall any memorable peculiarities, for the country, most of the way, is a succession of the gentlest swells and subsidences, affording wide and far glimpses of champagne scenery here and there, and sinking almost to a dead level as we draw near Stratford. Any landscape in New England, even the tamest, has a more striking outline, and besides would have its blue eyes open in those lakelets that we encounter almost from mile to mile at home, but of which the old country is utterly destitute. Or it would smile in our faces through the medium of the wayside brooks that vanish under a low stone arch on one side of the road, and sparkle out again on the other. Neither of these pretty features is often to be found in an English scene. The charm of the latter consists in the rich verdure of the fields, in the stately wayside trees, and carefully kept plantations of wood, and in the old and high cultivation that has humanized the very sods by mingling so much of man's toil and care among them. To an American there is a kind of sanctity even in an English turnip-field when he thinks how long that small square of ground has been known and recognized as a possession, transmitted from father to son, trodden often by memorable feet, and utterly redeemed from savagery by old acquaintanceship with civilized eyes. The wildest things in England are more than half tame. The trees, for instance, whether in hedgerow, park, or what they call forest, have nothing wild about them. They are never ragged. There is a certain decorous restraint in the freest outspread of their branches, though they spread wider than any self-nurturing tree. They are tall, vigorous, bulky, with a look of age-long life, and a promise of more years to come, all of which will bring them into closer kindred with the race of man. Somebody or other has known them from sapling upward, and if they endure long enough, they grow to be traditionally observed and honored, and connected with the fortunes of old families, till, like Tennyson's talking oak, they babble with a thousand leafy tongues to ears that can understand them. An American tree, however, if it could grow in fair competition with an English one of similar species, would probably be the more picturesque object of the two. The Warwickshire elm has not so beautiful a shape as those that overhang our village street, and as for the redoubtable English oak, there is a certain John Bullism in its figure, a compact rotundity of foliage, a lack of irregular and various outline, that make it look wonderfully like a gigantic cauliflower. Its leaf, too, is much smaller than that of most varieties of American oak, nor do I mean to doubt that the latter, with free leave to grow, reverent care and cultivation, and immunity from the axe, would live out its centuries as sturdily as its English brother, and prove far the nobler and more majestic specimen of a tree at the end of them. 
Still, however one's Yankee patriotism may struggle against the admission, it must be owned that the trees and other objects of an English landscape take hold of the observer by numberless minute tendrils, as it were, which, look as closely as we choose, we never find in an American scene. The parasitic growth is so luxuriant that the trunk of the tree, so gray and dry in our climate, is better worth observing than the boughs and foliage. A verdant messiness coats it all over, so that it looks almost as green as the leaves, and often, moreover, the stately stem is clustered about, high upward, with creeping and twining shrubs, the ivy, and sometimes the mistletoe, close-clinging friends, nurtured by the moisture and never too fervid sunshine, and supporting themselves by the old tree's abundant strength. We call it a parasitical vegetation, but, if the phrase imply any reproach, it is unkind to bestow it on this beautiful affection and relationship which exist in England between one order of plants and another the strong tree being always ready to give support to the trailing shrub, lift it to the sun, and feed it out of its own heart, if it craves such food, and the shrub on its part repaying its foster-father with an ample luxuriance of beauty, and adding Corinthian grace to the tree's lofty strength. No bitter winter nips these tender little sympathies, no hot sun burns the life out of them, and therefore they outlast the longevity of the oak, and if the woodman permitted, would bury it in a green grave when all is over. Should there be nothing else along the road to look at, an English hedge might well suffice to occupy the eyes, and, to a depth beyond what he would suppose, the heart of an American. We often set out hedges in our own soil, but might as well set out figs or pineapples, and expect to gather fruit of them. Something grows, to be sure, which we choose to call a hedge, but it lacks the dense, luxuriant variety of vegetation that is accumulated into the English original, in which a botanist would find a thousand shrubs and gracious herbs that the hedge-maker never thought of planting there. Among them, growing wild, are many of the kindred blossoms of the very flowers which our pilgrim fathers brought from England, for the sake of their simple beauty and home-like associations, and which we have ever since been cultivating in gardens. There is not a softer trait to be found in the character of those stern men than that they should have been sensible of these flower-roots clinging among the fibres of their rugged hearts, and have felt the necessity of bringing them over sea and making them hereditary in the new land, instead of trusting to what rarer beauty the wilderness might have in store for them. Or, if the roadside has no hedge, the ugliest stone fence, such as in America would keep itself bare and unsympathizing till the end of time, is sure to be covered with the small handiwork of nature. That careful mother lets nothing go naked there, and if she cannot provide clothing, gives at least embroidery. No sooner is the fence built than she adopts and adorns it as part of her original plan, treating the hard, uncomely construction as if it had all along been a favorite idea of her own. A little sprig of ivy may be seen creeping up the side of the low wall, and clinging fast with its many feet to the rough surface. A tuft of grass roots itself between two of the stones, 
where a pinch or two of wayside dust has been moistened into nutritious soil for it. A small bunch of fern grows in another crevice. A deep, soft, verdant moss spreads itself along the top and over all the available inequalities of the fence, and where nothing else will grow, lichens stick tenaciously to the bare stones and variegate the monotonous gray with hues of yellow and red. Finally, a great deal of shrubbery clusters along the base of the stone wall and takes away the hardness of its outline, and, in due time, as the upshot of these apparently aimless or sportive touches, we recognize that the beneficent creator of all things, working through his handmaiden, whom we call nature, has deigned to mingle a charm of divine gracefulness even with so earthly an institution as a boundary fence." The clown who wrought at it little dreamed what fellow-laborer he had. The English should send us photographs of portions of the trunks of trees, the tangled and various products of a hedge, and a square foot of an old wall. They can hardly send anything else so characteristic. Their artists, especially of the later school, sometimes toil to depict such subjects, but are apt to stiffen the lithe tendrils in the process. The poets succeed better, with Tennyson at their head, and often produce ravishing effects by dint of a tender minuteness of touch, to which the genius of the soil and climate artfully impels them, for, as regards grandeur, there are loftier scenes in many countries than the best that England can show. But, for the picturesqueness of the smallest object that lies under its gentle gloom and sunshine, there is no scenery like it anywhere. In the foregoing paragraphs I have strayed away to a long distance from the road to Stratford-on-Avon, for I remember no such stone fences as I have been speaking of in Warwickshire, nor elsewhere in England except among the lakes, or in Yorkshire, and the rough and hilly countries to the north of it. Hedges there were along my road, however, and broad level fields, rustic hamlets and cottages of ancient date, from the roof of one which the occupant was tearing away the thatch, and showing what an accumulation of dust, dirt, mouldiness, roots of weeds, families of mice, swallows' nests, and hordes of insects had been deposited there since that old straw was new. Estimating its antiquity from these tokens, Shakespeare himself, in one of his morning rambles out of his native town, might have seen the thatch laid on. At all events, the cottage walls were old enough to have known him as a guest. A few modern villas were also to be seen, and perhaps there were mansions of old gentility at no great distance, but hidden among the trees, for it is a point of English pride that such houses seldom allow themselves to be visible from the high road. In short, I recollect nothing specially remarkable along the way, nor in the immediate approach to Stratford, and yet the picture of that June morning has a glory in my memory, owing chiefly, I believe, to the charm of the English summer weather, the really good days of which are the most delightful that mortal man can ever hope to be favoured with. Such a genial warmth! A little too warm it might be, yet only to such a degree as to assure an American, 
a certainty to which he seldom attains till attempered to the customary austerity of an English summer day, that he was quite warm enough. And after all, there was an unconquerable freshness in the atmosphere, which every little movement of a breeze shook over me like a dash of the ocean spray. Such days need bring us no other happiness than their own light and temperature. No doubt I could not have enjoyed it so exquisitely, except that there must be still latent in us western wanderers, even after an absence of two centuries and more, an adaptation to the English climate which makes us sensible of a motherly kindness in its scantiest sunshine, and overflows us with delight at its more lavish smiles. The spire of Shakespeare's church, the Church of the Holy Trinity, begins to show itself among the trees at a little distance from Stratford. Next we see the shabby old dwellings, intermixed with mean-looking houses of a modern date, and the streets being quite level, you are struck and surprised by nothing so much as the tameness of the general scene, as if Shakespeare's genius were vivid enough to have wrought pictorial splendors in the town where he was born. Here and there, however, a queer edifice meets your eye, endowed with the individuality that belongs only to the domestic architecture of times gone by. The house seems to have grown out of some odd quality in its inhabitant, as a sea-shell is moulded from within by the character of its inmate, and having been built in a strange fashion generations ago, it has ever since been growing stranger and quainter, as old humorists are apt to do. Here, too, as so often impressed me in decayed English towns, there appeared to be a greater abundance of aged people wearing small clothes and leaning on sticks than you could assemble on our side of the water by sounding a trumpet and proclaiming a reward for the most venerable. I tried to account for this phenomenon by several theories, as, for example, that our new towns are unwholesome for age and kill it off unseasonably, or that our old men have a subtle sense of fitness and die of their own accord rather than live in an unseemly contrast with youth and novelty. But the secret may be, after all, that hair dyes, false teeth, modern arts of dress, and other contrivances of a skin-deep youthfulness have not crept into these antiquated English towns, and so people grow old without the weary necessity of seeming younger than they are. After wandering through two or three streets, I found my way to Shakespeare's birthplace, which is almost a smaller and humbler house than any description can prepare the visitor to expect. So inevitably does an august inhabitant make his abode palatial to our imaginations, receiving his guests, indeed, in a castle in the air, until we unwisely insist on meeting him among the sordid lanes and alleys of lower earth. The portion of the edifice with which Shakespeare had anything to do is hardly large enough, in the basement, to contain the butcher's stall that one of his descendants kept, and that still remains there, windowless, with the cleaver cuts in its hacked counter, which projects into the street under a little penthouse roof, as if waiting for a new occupant. 
The upper half of the door was open, and on my rapping at it, a young person in black made her appearance and admitted me. She was not a menial, but remarkably genteel, an American characteristic, for an English girl, and was probably the daughter of the old gentlewoman who takes care of the house. This lower room has a pavement of grey slabs of stone, which may have been rudely squared when the house was new, but are now all cracked, broken, and disarranged in a most unaccountable way. One does not see how any ordinary usage, for whatever length of time, should have smashed these heavy stones. It is as if an earthquake had burst up through the floor, which afterwards had been imperfectly trodden down again. The room is whitewashed and very clean, but woefully shabby and dingy, coarsely built, and such as the most poetical imagination would find it difficult to idealize. In the rear of this apartment is the kitchen, a still smaller room of a similar rude aspect. It has a great, rough fireplace, with space for a large family under the blackened opening of the chimney, and an immense passageway for the smoke, through which Shakespeare may have seen the blue sky by day, and the stars glimmering down at him by night. It is now a dreary spot, where the long-extinguished embers used to be. A glowing fire, even if it covered only a quarter part of the hearth, might still do much towards making the old kitchen cheerful. But we get a depressing idea of the stifled, poor, sombre kind of life that could have been lived in such a dwelling, where this room seems to have been the gathering-place of the family, with no breadth or scope, no good retirement, but old and young huddling together cheek by jowl. What a hardy plant was Shakespeare's genius! How fatal its development, since it could not be blighted in such an atmosphere! It only brought human nature the closer to him, and put more unctuous earth about his roots. Thence I was ushered upstairs to the room in which Shakespeare is supposed to have been born, though if you peep too curiously into the matter, you may find the shadow of an ugly doubt on this, as well as most other points of his mysterious life. It is the chamber over the butcher's shop, and is lighted by one broad window containing a great many small irregular panes of glass. The floor is made of planks, very rudely hewn, and fitting together with little neatness. The naked beams and rafters at the sides of the room and overhead bear the original marks of the builder's broad-axe, with no evidence of an attempt to smooth off the job. Again, we have to reconcile ourselves to the smallness of the space enclosed by these illustrious walls, a circumstance more difficult to accept as regards places that we have heard, read, thought, and dreamed much about than any other disenchanting particular of a mistaken ideal. A few paces, perhaps seven or eight, take us from end to end of it. So low it is that I could easily touch the ceiling, and might have done so without a tiptoe stretch had it been a good deal higher, and this humility of the chamber has tempted a vast multitude of people to write their names overhead in pencil. Every inch of the side walls, even into the obscurest nooks and corners, is covered with a similar record. All the window-panes, moreover, are scrawled with diamond signatures, among which is said to be that of Walter Scott, but so many persons have sought to immortalize themselves in close vicinity to his name, 
that I really could not trace him out. Methinks it is strange that people do not strive to forget their forlorn little identities in such situations, instead of thrusting them forward into the dazzle of a great renown, where, if noticed, they cannot but be deemed impertinent. This room, and the entire house, so far as I saw it, are whitewashed and exceedingly clean, nor is there the aged musty smell with which old Chester first made me acquainted, and which goes far to cure an American of his excessive predilection for antique residences. An old lady, who took charge of me upstairs, had the manners and aspect of a gentlewoman, and talked with somewhat formidable knowledge and appreciative intelligence about Shakespeare. Arranged on a table and in chairs were various prints, views of houses and scenes connected with Shakespeare's memory, together with editions of his works and local publications about his home and haunts, from the sale of which this respectable lady perhaps realizes a handsome profit. At any rate, I bought a good many of them, conceiving that it might be the civilest way of requiting her for her instructive conversation and the trouble she took in showing me the house. It cost me a pang, not a curmudgeonly, but a gentlemanly one, to offer a downright fee to the ladylike girl who had admitted me, but I swallowed my delicate scruples with some little difficulty as she digested hers, so far as I could observe, with no difficulty at all. In fact, nobody need fear to hold out half a crown to any person with whom he has occasion to speak a word in England. I should consider it unfair to quit Shakespeare's house without the frank acknowledgment that I was conscious of not the slightest emotion while viewing it, nor any quickening of the imagination. This has often happened to me in visits to memorable places. Whatever pretty and apposite reflections I may have made upon the subject had either occurred to me before I ever saw Stratford, or have been elaborated since. It is pleasant, nevertheless, to think that I have seen the place, and I believe that I can form a more sensible and vivid idea of Shakespeare as a flesh-and-blood individual now that I have stood on the kitchen-hearth and in the birth-chamber. But I am not quite certain that this power of realization is altogether desirable in reference to a great poet. The Shakespeare whom I met there took various guises, but had not his laurel on. He was successively the roguish boy, the youthful deer-stealer, the comrade of players, the too familiar friend of Davenant's mother, the careful, thrifty, thriven man of property who came back from London to lend money on bond and occupied the best house in Stratford, the mellow, red-nosed, autumnal boon companion of John Acom, and finally, or else the Stratford gossips belied him, the victim of convivial habits who met his death by tumbling into a ditch on his way home from a drinking bout, and left his second-best bed to his poor wife. I feel, as sensibly as the reader can, what horrible impiety it is to remember these things, be they true or false. In either case, they ought to vanish out of sight on the distant ocean line of the past, leaving a pure white memory, even as a sail, though perhaps darkened with many stains, looks snowy white on the far horizon. 
but I draw a moral from these unworthy reminiscences and this embodiment of the poet, as suggested by some of the grimy actualities of his life. It is for the high interests of the world not to insist upon finding out that its greatest men are, in a certain lower sense, very much the same kind of men as the rest of us, and often a little worse, because a common mind cannot properly digest such a discovery, nor ever know the true proportion of the great man's good and evil, nor how small a part of him it was that touched our muddy or dusty earth. Thence comes moral bewilderment, and even intellectual loss, in regard to what is best of him. When Shakespeare invoked a curse on the man who should stir his bones, he perhaps meant the larger share of it for him or them who should pry into his perishing earthliness. The defects, or even the merits of the character that he wore in Stratford, when he had left mankind so much to muse upon that was imperishable and divine. Heaven keep me from incurring any part of the anathema in requital for the irreverent sentences above written. From Shakespeare's house the next step, of course, is to visit his burial place. The appearance of the church is most venerable and beautiful, standing amid a great green shadow of lime-trees, above which rises the spire, while the Gothic battlements and buttresses and vast arched windows are obscurely seen through the boughs. The Avon loiters past the churchyard, an exceedingly sluggish river, which might seem to have been considering which way it should flow ever since Shakespeare left off paddling in it and gathering the large forget-me-nots that grow among its flags and water-weeds. An old man in small clothes was waiting at the gate, and inquiring whether I wished to go in, he preceded me to the church-porch and rapped. I could have done it quite as effectually for myself, but it seems the old people of the neighborhood haunt about the churchyard, in spite of the frowns and remonstrances of the sexton, who grudges them the half-elemosinary sixpence which they sometimes get from visitors. I was admitted into the church by a respectable-looking and intelligent man in black, the parish clerk, I suppose, and probably holding a richer incumbency than his vicar if all the fees which he handles remain in his own pocket. He was already exhibiting the Shakespeare monuments to two or three visitors, and several other parties came in while I was there. The poet and his family are in possession of what may be considered the very best burial places that the church affords. They lie in a row, right across the breadth of the chancel, the foot of each gravestone being close to the elevated floor on which the altar stands. Nearest to the side-wall, beneath Shakespeare's bust, is a slab bearing a Latin inscription addressed to his wife, and covering her remains, then his own slab, with the old anathematizing stanza upon it, then that of Thomas Nash, who married his granddaughter, then that of Dr. Hall, the husband of his daughter Susanna, and, lastly, Susanna's own. Shakespeare's is the commonest-looking slab of all, being just such a flagstone as Essex Street in Salem used to be paved with when I was a boy. Moreover, unless my eyes or recollection deceive me, there is a crack across it, as if it had already undergone some such violence as the inscription deprecates. Unlike the other monuments of the family, it bears no name— nor am I acquainted with the grounds or authority on which it is absolutely determined to be Shakespeare's, 
although, being in a range with those of his wife and children, it might naturally be attributed to him. But then, why does his wife, who died afterwards, take precedence of him and occupy the place next his bust? And where are the graves of another daughter and son, who have a better right in the family row than Thomas Nash, his grandson-in-law? Might not one or both of them have been laid under the nameless stone? But it is a dangerous trifling with Shakespeare's dust, so I forbear to meddle further with the grave, though the prohibition makes it tempting, and shall let whatever bones be in it rest in peace. Yet I must needs add that the inscription on the bust seems to imply that Shakespeare's grave was directly underneath it. The poet's bust is affixed to the northern wall of the church, the base of it being about a man's height, or rather more, above the floor of the chancel. The features of this piece of sculpture are entirely unlike any portrait of Shakespeare that I have ever seen, and compel me to take down the beautiful, lofty-browed, and noble picture of him which has hitherto hung in my mental portrait gallery. The bust cannot be said to represent a beautiful face, or an eminently noble head, but it clutches firmly hold of one's sense of reality, and insists upon your accepting it, if not as Shakespeare the poet, yet as the wealthy burgher of Stratford, the friend of John Acom, who lies yonder in the corner. I know not what the phrenologists say to the bust. The forehead is but moderately developed, and retreats somewhat, the upper part of the skull rising pyramidally, the eyes are prominent almost beyond the penthouse of the brow. The upper lip is so long that it must have been almost a deformity, unless the sculptor artistically exaggerated its length, in consideration that, on the pedestal, it must be foreshortened by being looked at from below. On the whole, Shakespeare must have had a singular rather than a prepossessing face, and it is wonderful how, with this bust before its eyes, the world has persisted in maintaining an erroneous notion of his appearance, allowing painters and sculptors to foist their idealized nonsense on its all, instead of the genuine man. For my part, the Shakespeare of my mind's eye is henceforth to be a personage of a ruddy English complexion, with a reasonably capacious brow, intelligent and quickly observant eyes, a nose curved slightly outward, a long, queer upper lip, with a mouth a little unclosed beneath it, and cheeks considerably developed in the lower part and beneath the chin. But when Shakespeare was himself, for nine-tenths of the time, according to all appearances, he was but the burgher of Stratford, he doubtless shone through this dull mask, and transfigured it into the face of an angel." Fifteen or twenty feet behind the row of Shakespeare gravestones is the great east window of the church, now brilliant with stained glass of recent manufacture. On one side of this window, under a sculptured arch of marble, lies a full-length marble figure of John Acom, clad in what I take to be a robe of municipal dignity, and holding its hands devoutly clasped. It is a sturdy English figure, with coarse features, a type of ordinary man whom we smile to see immortalized in the sculpturesque material of poets and heroes. 
But the prayerful attitude encourages us to believe that the old usurer may not, after all, have had that grim reception in the other world which Shakespeare's squib foreboded for him. By the by, till I grew somewhat familiar with Warwickshire pronunciation, I never understood that the point of those ill-natured lines was a pun. Oh ho, quoth the devil, tis my John a-come. That is, my John has come. Close to the poet's bust is a nameless, oblong, cubic tomb, supposed to be that of a clerical dignitary of the fourteenth century. The church has other mural monuments and altar tombs, one or two of the latter upholding the recumbent figures of knights in armor and their dames, very eminent and worshipful personages in their day, no doubt, but doomed to appear forever intrusive and impertinent within the precincts which Shakespeare has made his own. His renown is tyrannous, and suffers nothing else to be recognized within the scope of its material presence, unless illuminated by some side-ray from himself. The clerk informed me that interments no longer take place in any part of the church, and it is better so, for methinks a person of delicate individuality, curious about his burial-place, and desirous of six feet of earth for himself alone, could never endure to be buried near Shakespeare, but would rise up at midnight and grope his way out of the church-door, rather than sleep in the shadow of so stupendous a memory. End of section 8